Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. There are a lot of places where we can find details that we don't care about. Open up a newspaper and you're bound to find some public information that needs to be printed. And if you were to actually read through it, does anybody do that? You would find that there would likely be minutia of detail that only a lawyer somewhere would care if it was shared with anyone. And you can say the same for, say, an end user license agreement that is included with some software you purchased or some online service you're signing up for. If you were to actually take a minute to read the details lined out there, you might find yourself in a deep sleep before you even know it. You might also feel great pity for the person whose full-time job it is to write this stuff, right? I'm guessing that lining out those details is not only not very fun to have as a job, but I would also assume that making sure that all of that stuff is correct and legal is not exactly easy work. Well, another type of list that contains minutia of detail is a family tree. Now, while the information found in these family trees can be quite fascinating, there is something that naturally happens as you get deeper down into the details of a family tree. Because the names that you know on a family tree are interesting, right? You know who they are. You've maybe seen pictures of them. You maybe even remember going to your great-grandmother's house when you were young. The people in your generation, that interests you. Maybe in your parents' generation, their cousins, maybe that interests you because you know them. Maybe even your grandparents' generation is of interest to you. You're naturally drawn to it. But as you dig down beyond the names of people that you know, Suddenly, they just become names on a page. And you don't really understand why you should even care. But then, when I think about it a little bit, I wake up to a very important fact. Without those people down the list further, I don't exist. There is no me. As boring as it all can be, it's important And it's vital to my understanding of where I came from and who I am. And as we continue through the story of the family of Jacob this morning in the book of Genesis, we have just read through a boring list with a bunch of names that I hope you felt pity for me on as I had to pronounce. Thank you for loving me that much. I appreciate it. Not only do we see this boring list of names, it is a significant part of the story ultimately. Not only in the truth that this would have been important to the original audience because it would have been the family tree of the people of Israel, but also for us as people who are a part of the family of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see how the promised line to the Messiah that we first learned about back in Genesis 3 is now continuing. It's going through the line of Jacob. God has kept His promise. And we're going to see later on that this goes through Judah and beyond. But what we are reminded of here in this list of names 
is that God is faithful to the promise to bring the One who will crush the head of the serpent. Now as we get into this passage this morning, let's break it down into the three points so that we can move through the passage together more easily. So the first thing that we're going to see and observe in the passage is that Jacob is receiving confirmation from God about this journey to Egypt. If you'll remember back to last week, we, we made the observation that the people of God have been told they will inherit the promised land. But they had not possessed that promised land yet. And I drew out the fact last week that this, this move to Egypt was actually moving them away from the promise of the land that God had made to them. And it's implied that Jacob is going to die outside of that promised land without possessing it. Well, today, we see that Jacob receives confirmation of his relocation from God Himself. And then secondly, we will find that all of his offspring makes their way to Egypt with them. As I mentioned before, we have a boring list of people, but they're important people. It shows us the faithfulness of God to save His people. Not only from the famine that they are facing in the moment, but it's a reminder of the faithfulness of God beyond the generation that we see in this story that we've been following in Genesis. Finally, we will see Jacob and Joseph reunited. This is the part of the story that we've really been hoping for since the separation of Joseph from his family. And at the end of this passage, we find Joseph and his father together once again. And the people of God come into the land of Egypt and they dwell there. So let's continue from where we left off and get into chapter 46 where we left off last week. Jacob had made a statement that he would head over to Egypt and see Joseph before he dies. And the feeling we got at the end of that passage was one of apprehension. Not only at the fact that Joseph was actually still alive after all these years, but the arrival of wagons is what it took for him to actually believe that it was time to go. It took proof of something more substantial to verify what his sons were saying. And now he's going to see this son that he longed believed to be dead. Now it's easy for us to understand the apprehension that Jacob has here. And you and I could easily brainstorm a list. Why would we want to go to Egypt? Can we trust Egyptians? If we can buy their food and bring it here, why do we need to go there and eat their food there? What, what difference does this make? Uh, we've been promised this land of Canaan where we are. Now, we haven't possessed it, but this is the place where God promises that we're going to be. Does God want us to relocate? How will our family handle relocation? Jacob is clearly old and not in the best of health. And he might wonder how such a journey might affect him. Will he even make it to see Joseph again? These are just the things that can come to the forefront of our minds as we imagine what's going on here. What might be going through Jacob's mind or the other members of the family's mind. And not only that, but remember, Jacob is reeling from the news that his beloved son is alive. And then he's immediately presented with the idea of moving his entire family away from where they're safe. Away from where, they're, where they are established. And as the passage begins, we see that they take all that they have 
And then they do something. They come to Beersheba. Now that's not just a weird name, Bible sounding place. This is an important place. Remember, this is an important place where Abraham and where Isaac have worshipped God and made sacrifices. And then back in chapter 28, Jacob also worshipped there. This is an important stop. And I'm guessing it's also a deliberate one. They didn't stop at Beersheba randomly on their way to Egypt. This is more than just a place, hey, let's pull off and get something here and stop and use the restroom type of stop for their family as they travel. My family knows if we're traveling on Interstate 80 that we have to stop at Manuka, Illinois so I can get coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. Them's the rules. Okay? But that's insignificant. But we all have things like that. Places where we travel, we stop off and get things that we like or we see people we know. Beersheba is more than that. This is a significant stop. It's a place of worship. And it's a place where they sacrifice to God. This God who has been faithful to them throughout the generations. This God who has made a covenant with them. They stopped here to worship God deliberately because that's what they do at Beersheba. They offer sacrifice to God. They worship God. And we see in what happens here that while Jacob has agreed to go to Egypt and, and he got him and his folk into the wagons, we see that there's still clearly significant apprehension at making this journey. And so God speaks to Jacob. And we remember incidents from further back in Genesis. And we get an idea of a specific reason that Jacob would have been leery of a move to Egypt. Jacob's father, Isaac, he was kept from going to Egypt during a famine, if you remember back in Genesis. And Abraham ended up in Egypt during a famine. And Abraham had a whole incident there where things didn't go so well. Remember when he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister and didn't add the fact that he, she was also his wife and all of this stuff happens? They have a family history of things not going well going to Egypt during a famine. It's not gone very well for their family. And as I mentioned, they may not be in possession of the land of Canaan right now, but they are sojourning in this land that God has promised to them. So to go to Egypt seems against what has happened to his forefathers and contrary to what God has promised them. You can understand the apprehension here. And so we're told that God spoke to Jacob via visions of the night. In the book of Genesis, we, we see that the patriarchs often have this prophetic role where, where God speaks directly to them. And here this happens in visions of the night. Now, considering how God has spoken to Jacob and others, in the book of Genesis, previously, this, this could easily be through a dream, but we're not explicitly told that this is actually a dream. But just as with the vision that Jacob received that night where he saw the staircase from heaven, God is speaking to Jacob. God speaks and Jacob responds here in submission when God says his name. And God confirms his identity to Jacob by saying that he's the, he's the God of his father. And he also confirms this promise that he has made to his people. God tells Jacob that, that he is the God of his father. And he tells them not to be afraid to go to Egypt because even in Egypt, even there, 
the promise of God is going to follow him. It will be in Egypt that God makes him into a great nation. That was the promise. And God says, I will do it there. Even though they're moving away from the land that God promised to them, God is going to do His work and make Jacob's family a great nation in Egypt. And God lets him know that He's going to be there with him in Egypt. And He will bring them out of that place. He's not only going to allow them to go, He's going to bring them out. And as we read here, there's an interesting statement that reminds us that God is playing the long game. He is going to bring them out of Egypt. He's going to make them a great nation. But we read here that Joseph is going to close his eyes. Jacob himself He is not going to experience God bringing them out of Egypt. But He will do this for those who come after Him. Throughout the book of Genesis, we have seen that the promise is presented to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob. But what happens? They die. They don't get the promise themselves. But how do they die? They die trusting and believing that the promise will come to pass. And this is precisely what the book of Hebrews tells us in that Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11, right? That all these people died looking to the promise that was to come. The promise of God is about more than their immediate family having possessions. It's more than about what they're going to experience in this earthly life. It's about what is to come. The promise of God for them. It was about hoping that God would bring them to the great promised land. And it was about them believing that His promise of salvation would come to pass. It's about the covenant that God has made to be a God to them and to their children. God is playing the long game. It's about the covenant promise to bring the Messiah. Not just for their people, but we know from the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this promise. God is playing the long game. And with this confirmation from God, we find that Jacob and his family continue their journey into the land of Egypt. They set out from Beersheba, confirmed that they're supposed to go. And Jacob sees that this is the right thing. And it's as if Moses is helping us to know this is okay. As the reader, and considering the past situations with Egypt that we've talked about, you know, we're told that this is actually the plan of God. Even though it, when you read Genesis before, it might not seem that way. This is the plan of God, not the plotting of man, not the plotting of Joseph. And we've clearly seen that God's hand is on Joseph and that God is the one orchestrating all of this to save His people from this severe famine. We've felt that in the story so far, right? Joseph told his brothers that this was the case when he revealed himself to them. And now now God is confirming what we've seen in the story, what we've felt in the story by this direct revelation to Jacob. And so we get the full story of who has been loaded into the wagons here. This is the boring list. And this is more than just Jacob and his sons loading up the Egyptian U-Hauls that they sent down and setting out for the land of Goshen. Remember, this little kingdom that we have seen the family of Abraham developing into. 
We've read many times of the the spoils that came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob throughout Genesis. It was substantial with Abraham and Isaac, but, but now it's even more substantial with Jacob because what has happened with Jacob? Jacob has been blessed with many more sons. He's the father of many. And now, even though Isaac received the inheritance from Abraham and it was passed on to Jacob and not Esau, that was still a very small family. Now there are 12 sons of Israel that are a part of this little kingdom. And each one of them has children. And we see this as we're told that the wagons are loaded with Jacob, their little ones, and their wives. But the possessions of Jacob are more than just a family. There's livestock. There's goods gained in the land of Canaan. These are being taken with them despite what Pharaoh told them in the previous chapter. Don't worry about anything. We'll take care of you. They're still loading up all of their stuff and taking it. And here in this short passage, we see Moses being redundant here as he tells the story. You can see it here in these verses that they all come into Egypt. His sons, his daughters, his sons' daughters, all the offspring goes with them to Egypt. Like I said, it's redundant. But something is being set up for us here. The idea is that nothing is left behind in Canaan. They take everything. Not just his family has been removed from the land, but all of their possessions, all of their livestock as well. There's nothing left of them in the land of promise. They have nothing there anymore. And as we go forward and, and with our knowledge of what the Bible is going to tell us going forward, God is going to have to be the one to bring them back. They're not going to be able to say, hey, we left somebody in the land of promise. We're, we're going to go back there. No, it's been emptied out. And so God is going to have to be the one who brings them into the promised land. That's what's being set up here. Completely vacated so that God can be the one who brings them back. But this does more here than help us with the future story of the people of God going into the land. It also sets up an opportunity for a roll call. And one of those boring lists. There are some things that make this more than just a boring list that I have accused them of being. Moses is letting us know the names of all the people that are leaving the land and going to Egypt because family is important. Inheritance is important. Where you came from is important. And the original audience of the book of Genesis would have been able to look at this moment and know that someone in their family tree went into Egypt. And now as they are going into the land of the promise later on, as they're hearing the story from their ancestors here in the book of Genesis, they're saying, I'm related to that person and God has kept His promise to me through them. So let's pick a random name from the list. Shuni from the line of Gad. Imagine Shuni. You've just read that God is going to bring Jacob back into the land. He has made the promise and you're one of the children of Jacob. You're of the tribe of Gad. You are a descendant now later on of Shuni. And you're going into the promised land. You can say God has kept His promise to our father Jacob, to our father Gad, to our father Shuni. God is keeping His promise. God took us out of the land, but now we are going back. God keeps His promise. These boring lists 
are a confirmation of the faithfulness that God has to His people. They may put us to sleep, but they are vital to our understanding of who God is and what He's done for His people. And so another important thing to see here is how comprehensive this list is. Moses wants us to know everyone who's going into Egypt. He tells us that there were 70 of them. Now in our day of relatively small families, right? It's not like it was a few generations ago when a bunch of people had 12 kids, right? In our day, just one or two generations of 70 people might seem like a lot. We read this and go, whoa, 70 offspring just a few generations from Jacob. But that's not very many when you consider how many are going to come out of Egypt. There's a roll call here. 70 people. So that when they are going into the promised land and they look around and they see the multitude of millions going into the promised land, they know because Moses told them there were 70. He took a roll call. They know that God has been faithful to what He just said to Jacob. That He was going to make His people a great nation in Egypt. They were made a great nation in Egypt. And they have the numbers and the names in front of them to prove it. Again, God is faithful. He keeps His promise to His people. And so we see how all this is set up as we move into the third and final section of our passage this morning as we get to verse 28 of chapter 46. We see that Judah is the one that speaks here. He's the leader of the twelve. Now, he isn't the oldest, but he has become the one who speaks for the children of Jacob. And so this anticipates that he is going to be the one that Jacob is going to bless. That this is the one on whom the covenant promise will rest. And we know the story here. Jesus comes from the line of Judah. So we're seeing this character of Judah built up as the one through whom the promise will eventually come. But here we see that Judah is the leader. He goes ahead. And we see that this must have been exciting for Joseph because He gets in his chariot and heads to see his father. And of course he did. Of course he did. It's been 26 long years. Very, very long years. And he's going to go see his dad. He's going to see his father. And once again, we see Joseph overcome with emotion. And well, he should be, right? He goes to Jacob. And we read that he not only wept on his neck, but what does it tell us? It says that he wept on his neck a good while. Now, I have no record of how long a good while is, but I'm guessing 26 years came out with a whole lot of tears for a whole lot of time. And they also have tears of joy here because Joseph knows that God separated them for a purpose. That God is saving His people through what happened. It was a terrible thing. But now they're not only reunited, they're reunited by the hand of God bringing them together. You know, we can empathize with what's going on here. You and I have missed people we haven't seen in a long time. We've been separated from people. But at the same time, we can't even begin to feel the depth of what Joseph and Jacob must have endured here as they're reunited. Because Jacob thought Joseph to be long dead. And we see here in this statement that Jacob makes, now let me die now that I know you're alive. He's not wishing to keel over in that moment. That's not what he's suggesting. He's expressing that he has reached a pinnacle of joy and peace, seeing with his own eyes that his son is alive. And so now he can die in peace. He can die happy. 
And after this whole joyful reunion that is laden with tears, we see that Joseph is now setting the stage. And this is important. He's setting the stage for their arrival. And we see that once again, Joseph is wise. He sets things up as he sets things up so that the people of God might be set apart from the Egyptians. That they might have the land of Goshen for their family to grow and to be left alone so that God can make them a great nation. We wonder about this language here, talking about uh, them being shepherds and the Egyptians not liking that. We're going to see here what's going on because Joseph anticipates that Pharaoh will want to see his brothers. and He tells him to emphasize that they're shepherds, that they're keepers of livestock. Why would that be the emphasis? And we see what the specific pur- purpose is in what Joseph tells him to say. This isn't just Joseph help them, helping them make friendly conversation with someone as powerful as Pharaoh. They're to tell them that they're not just recently shepherds, but they've been keepers of livestock from their youth. It goes back into their family. This is all we've known. This is what our fathers did too. We're shepherds through and through. Seems like a strange thing to emphasize. Well, we see the purpose of this statement because Joseph says that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You see, Joseph understands that they are to be set apart for God. They're to be set apart. And so to ensure this, he wants them to be sent into their own spot in Goshen where they, away, where they are away from the Egyptians. So to do this, he makes it clear to Pharaoh, we're an abomination to you. Send us off by ourselves. You don't like us. Put us over here. Right? Now we don't know exactly why the Egyptians thought that shepherds were an abomination. But we saw this a little bit back when Joseph and his brothers had uh, supper together, right? Uh, they had to eat separately. We don't know why they thought this. Egyptians would have had livestock themselves. They had all these animals. They ate meat. So they had to have shepherds, but still we read here that they don't like this. So we think that perhaps this is about foreign shepherds, that they don't like foreign shepherds for some reason, and maybe it's because of their religious practices of sacrifice. Again, we don't we don't really know, but Joseph is using these prejudices for a purpose. The people of God must not be assimilated into the pagan Egyptian culture. The Hebrews must be set apart for worship of the one true God. And so Joseph uses this, uses this predisposition of Egyptians against shepherds to ensure that the people of God are set apart from the pagan ways of the Egyptians. And it's with these instructions from Joseph that we leave the story hanging this week. And it's with this idea of the people of God being set apart that I want us to land on for our application for this week. You see, Joseph Joseph understood that his people were to be set apart to God. Not because they had some inherent dislike for Egyptians or from for some other ethnic group, but because God had set the Hebrew people apart for the purpose of accomplishing God's purposes in salvation by bringing the Messiah 
through their line. Joseph understood that this meant that this idea of being set apart was so important that he was willing for his people to face scorn and be considered an abomination to the people of Egypt. Well, you and I, we are called to be set apart to God as well. That's what the word holy means. The word holy means to be set apart. That's what holiness is about. Being set apart for God. Yet, you and I, we are far too often drawn in by the allure of the world. When the call on our lives to live in holiness comes, are we more concerned with what the world thinks of us or with what God requires of us? Do we want to fit in more than we want to be holy? Now, this is a difficult question for us to consider because it doesn't mean that we openly look to be hostile to the world so that they'll separate us from them or we'll separate ourselves from them. This isn't about desiring to be scorned. It isn't desiring to be divisive. But there is a call on us to be holy. And it's about being set apart in holiness so that we might be the people of God. Because in Christ, we are a great nation. We are a great nation in Christ. We're made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But we're set apart as the people of God because we are united to Christ. We've been saved by His grace. And we're called to live a life that reflects what He has done to save us. And so as we consider this story of Joseph and the people of God, we see that they were set apart and they were willing to be scorned, to be an abomination to the, to the world around them, to the pagan Egyptians around them, because they understood that they were to be holy. They were to be set apart to God. And so may we consider counting the cost to be obedient to Christ. May we consider this story of Joseph and of the people of God And may you and I be willing to be set apart no matter the cost. That you and I might be obedient to the call that has been placed on us to be obedient to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page.